on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. When I'm with an audience, what I'm conscious of is that I'm communicating something that is ancient and mythic, but that it's relevant now, it's relevant today. And the threads that are pulled together from the story and connected through me to the audience or from the audience through me is this idea of what it means to be human and that the stories are constantly trying to show us what we are, remind us what we are and insist on helping us to hold fast to what we are and that stories are a way of showing us what happens when we try too hard to deviate from who we are and from what connects us to this earth and to nature and to each other. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Jan Blake, one of Europe's leading storytellers who has been performing for 35 years. Jan specializes in myths and folktales from Africa, the Caribbean, and Arabia, and has mesmerized audiences at every major storytelling festival worldwide. Jan has been the storyteller in residence for the Hay Literary Festival, the curator for Shakespeare stories at the World Shakespeare Festival, and the recipient of the British Award for Storytelling Excellence. Jan also leads popular workshops for emerging storytellers and gives master classes on the craft of storytelling. In our conversation today, we speak of the return to her childhood home after many years living in the city of London. We explore the role of the storyteller and the necessity of permission to connect with an audience. Jan shares the story of the hunter and the challenges young men face in the cultural climate of today. And finally, we speak of the magic that blurs the line between telling a story and the story telling you. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. If you wish to dive deeper into the themes and practices explored in this podcast, head over to network.themythicmasculine.com to claim your free trial. And now, enjoy my conversation with Jan Blake. Welcome, Jan, to the show. Thanks, Ian. Uh, um, I appreciate you asking me on. Thank you. Mm. I'd love to begin my interviews with uh, an ask to the guests to share a little bit about where they are in this moment, you know, geographically, spiritually, you know, whatever, uh, whatever is true in this moment. Okay, so right now I'm sitting in my little storytelling nook 
in my house in Manchester. I grew up in this house and uh, we're one of the few families on this street that have lived here for uh, over 50 years. I haven't always lived here. I came back. So there's something special about being here in this house, in this room, which used to be my mother's bedroom and is now my room and my storytelling area. And uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm feeling very grateful for my life. That's where I'm at. Beautiful. There's something mythic about returning home, uh, especially, you know, the, the fact that you're in the home you grew up and you said this is your mother's, or was your mother's room. And I wonder, you know, what is that like to be in the place where perhaps so many formative memories happened uh, and, and who you are now in this moment? It took a while for me to to feel that this was home again after being away for so long. I was down in London for 30 odd years. So to feel as though I had a right to call it my home after all those years took a while to ease into. Uh, I guess the irony of lockdown is that it gave me the opportunity to be here because I spend a lot of my time traveling with work. I, I used to spend a lot of my time traveling with work and being here and being forced to be really be here has been a blessing. So that's really good. Uh, it's been weird kind of, my sister's always lived here. So I live with my, my younger sister. She's always lived here and our memories are so different because I left home at 18, 19. She's always lived here. So I refer to things that happened so long ago and her memories are so recent of being here so (laughs) there are times when she looks at me as if to say what the hell you know that was ages ago but that's what I've got you know and um that keeps me feeling safe I guess I feel very safe being here Hmm. I'm reminded of a a line I don't I can't remember where it's from but you know they say you can never go home again and at the same time maybe they mean maybe the home that it was when you were a child, but that home can be inhabited differently, you know, as when you make a conscious decision to return. But I feel mm. that there's something in that, um, that, that I'm curious, you know, how that looks to you from where you are. You know, it was the garden first, actually. It wasn't the house that I felt able to claim as mine immediately and to feel healed by it was the garden because I remember a a story my mum told me about when we first came to buy this house she said that the garden that the grass was so high that I was just a baby but my younger brother my elder brother rather um ran into the grass and she said she knew this was our house when he started singing and playing in the grass so so, and the garden is where we all used to, there's four siblings that grew up together. I have two other siblings that I, di- I didn't grow up with, but four siblings, we grew up together. And that garden was everything, you know? Like, we weren't the kind of family, we had friends as children, but our parents were really clear that we had to play with each other, we had to love each other. And it wasn't about going to other people's houses and going to other friends' houses, it was about, you know, your your sister's your friend, your brother's your friend, go and play in the garden. 
So the garden was our cricket pitch. It was our football pitch. It was, you know, climbing onto the roof of the shed and jumping down. That was our daredevil area. It's where we, you know, the cats gave birth in the shed. So the kittens, you know, the the garden was our everything as children. So to reconnect with that first, one of the first things I did when I came home was convince my sister that um, I should run my storytelling courses in the garden. So I bought a five metre bell tent and put it up in the garden. And so my courses run in the garden and people have been coming in and out of the garden and then doing barbecues in the garden. And just it's, it's just taken on a new life for me. Mm. I think that's where that, that decision to come home, I made the garden home first and then moved into the house, <laughs> spiritually speaking, after that. Mm. Beautiful. And you name storytelling as a big piece of that, maybe making a home for the storytelling, you know, within the garden. Yeah. And um, that seems to be so much of the the theme or the 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 work that you've given yourself to. I mean, if you if you even can call it work, uh, maybe possessed by. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true. <laughs> and I wonder, um, how did you first come to storytelling as this this ignition of your sense of purpose? Uh, by accident, by total accident, I was working in community theatre, and the woman that I was working with. Uh, mentioned that she, when she finished the theatre comp- with the theatre company, that she would go back to her storytelling group, and then she would um, earn some real money. And as I was struggling down in London, and the idea of real money appealed to me, I said, "Oh yeah, how, how are you going to make real money?" And she said, "Oh, working with this storytelling group called Common Law Storytellers and Musicians." And at the time, they were looking for a Caribbean storyteller, a storyteller of Caribbean origin. So um, I went along. They said to bring a story, a game and a song from your own tradition. I sang them, told them, played them. And uh, I was in. And that was June 1986. And uh, it was amazing to me to find a place where I didn't know folk arts were my thing. My mother always used to sing songs from Jamaica when I was growing up, playground games, things like that. And my dad wasn't very, um, he wasn't very enamoured with that. You know, he thought it was unsophisticated. Uh, But it's become my way of being in the world. So my mum must have known what she was doing or had an idea of what she was doing. So when I joined Common Law Storytellers and Musicians, even though I was quite a difficult character at the time, I was quite an enraged person when I joined them. But um, it was, it was, it was like going home because it wasn't so much the stories; it was the music, it was the it was the songs, it was the traditional songs from West Africa that I was learning. It was the traditional songs from Ireland, traditional chants and calls from India. Suddenly, I was immersed in this work of folk art, folk performance, Mm. folk culture. And I was so comfortable with it and so at peace with it and so happy to be immersed in it that even though I've done a bit of theatre since then, a bit of television since then, 
I really it's the it's the tiniest part of who I am and what I am. Mm-hmm. In my conversation uh, with Martin Shaw just prior, uh, he brought up a quote which I feel is actually appropriate here. Uh, he said, "Myth is the place where poetry and music have yet to diverge." Um, quoting uh, Robert something, I can't remember the the name of the person, but and I feel that's what you said. There's this there is this convergence. It feels like within myth of of this sense of home of of tradition of maybe a, a storied relationship to place, uh, which I feel is conjured in a way through the storyteller. And I wonder, yeah, yeah, if you could speak to that as the the function of the storyteller in regards to those elements. I'm. It's difficult for me to put any anything related to what I do in any academic context. I have to tell you now because it's so driven by an intuitive energy. What I do, how I do it, what I do, it it kind of. I don't know how. I don't know how I do it. This is the thing. This is the issue. And so there are people out there who write books about it and can speak about it in in highly academic ways. But I simply embody it, if that makes sense. I do it. If I'm asked about it in specific ways, I can talk about it. Um, but I also have this tendency to forget everything <laughs> that I've said after I've said it mm. and after I've done it. So I I I find it really difficult to to answer. If you can simplify the point, maybe I can answer it. You know, I have to be really true to myself, you know. Sure. Absolutely. And I feel maybe it, it, not academic but perhaps mythic, you know, to, to understand what what mythically might the storyteller's function be. Um, you know, in relation to the stories and in relation to the audience. Like it feels like, like you said, there's this conduit or, or sort of, dare I say, transmission yeah. of some kind that comes through uh, between, in some sense, the other world um, and, and the audience through the storyteller. Or at least that's what it seems to me yeah. in the presence of. But I think it's also, it's the, the mythic in, in the sense of being here now. Does that make sense? So when I'm with an audience... What I'm conscious of is that I'm communicating something that is ancient and mythic, but that it's relevant now, it's relevant today. And the threads that are pulled together from the story and connected through me to the audience or from the audience through me is this idea of what it means to be human and that the stories are constantly trying to show us what we are remind us what we are and insist on helping us to hold fast to what we are and that stories are a way of showing us what happens when we try too hard to deviate from who we are and from what connects us to this earth and to nature and to each other. So I'm conscious that I'm trying to keep that connection going when I'm with an audience. And that I it's 
it's a gift to be able to be here in 2020 and still have access to that space. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what I'm doing. And at the same time, what I want to do, or what I hope I'm doing, is embracing everybody in the audience where they are, rather than saying, you know, it's not my job to say, be be a better human human. That's not what I'm here to do. I, I think I'm here to embrace humans and myself where we are with all our foibles and all our flaws and all our confusion and all our love and all our hate and all our joy and all our yearnings and all our fears which are a reflection of my own because I'm just like everybody else uh, to hold everyone in that space at the same time as saying look the stories offer us so much more than where we are now and it's okay to be where we are and it's also okay to dip into this world that is showing us pathways to our own humanity. Beautiful. In preparation for this interview, I was very excited um, to speak with one uh, that has so much uh, time in with, with story and particularly in relation to the mythopoetic, that it seems like story is so much a part of it, that there's something about story and, and myth and where they intersect, particularly in this time, you know, largely in the podcast, often in relation to trying to understand masculinity from from different lenses that are often offered to us in a more of a literal paradigm. You know, modernity seems often too literal to allow for a kind of, you know, nuanced um, imagination and, and creativity to come in to these questions. Um, and so my question for you around story, and, and, and again, in terms of the, the mechanics or the, if I don't, not to use them, um, uh, mechanical language, but the life, perhaps, of story. Um, you spoke in another presentation. You said uh, stories are a bitter pill. Uh, that often the there's a lesson, for, for example, encoded within the story, uh, but it maybe be too hard to confront face on, and so it needs to be wrapped in the story to sort of make it uh, palatable. Um, and I hear that in what you were saying a little bit around um, a kind of. Um, support not to deviate too far from our humanity maybe if am i reflecting it back yeah and i wonder as well is there a sort of a, a way of that stories are, are not or is there a danger of stories being prescriptive almost like you know a kind of hans christian anderson moralizing that can sometimes get snuck in um or are stories often more wild than that you know in some sense they defy a kind of prescriptive list of how to be per se because they can look different and and uh, stir you differently depending on when they're told and how and with who and all that all of that yeah I tend not to try and put the moral and the moral of the story is I find that really restrictive and prescriptive as you say I think yeah the wildness is what appeals to me more than the prescriptive I was at storytelling well I was at folk music festival in Viliandi in uh, Estonia First time I went was 2011, I think. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, yeah, your stories are so moralistic. And I said, I'm not 
I'm not aware of the fact the stories are moralistic. I said it's about how you experience the story that makes it moralistic or not. I'm not trying to be moralistic. I'm not trying to tell anyone how to behave. The stories are what they are. If a story has a beginning, middle and end and someone suffers the consequences of their behaviour, that's not moralistic. That's just natural law. That's cause and effect. That's just the way of things. It's not me imposing that on you. Uh, But he was uh, very insistent that, you know, I was kind of waving a moral flag and expecting people to, to fall in line. But I think all you can do as a storyteller is hold up a mirror. And the, the, the quote about the bitter pill is something I heard from a colleague called Eno Saucy. And she was a student of Idris Shah and Amina Shah. So I think that she was quoting them when she said it. And I think it's true. I think, But I don't think that it's about being confronted. I think it's about it being palatable or unpalatable. I think it's about whether or not you can swallow it. I think you'll be confronted with lots of things in life. It's whether or not you can swallow it, whether or not you can cope with it. And as the famous Mary Poppins song says, you know, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. (laughs) So I don't think that's so far away from the truth of what a story can be. Um, But I think the other thing about a story is you can get tunnel vision about what the story is about you can make a decision about what a story is about because of the way you, because of where you are when you hear it and how it impacts on you but there are some stories that flip you over and over and over because one minute you're following the trail of the emotion of this character and then suddenly you're flipped and your loyalty suddenly switches and you're following the emotional trail of that character and then you're flipped again and you're following the emotional trail of that character and the stories are multi-layered and multifaceted so even as a teller I might experience it in one particular way 10 years ago for instance and then come to the same story 10 years later and have a a completely different level of insight because of my own life experiences to be open to that I think is important because that's life anyway. You can't, if you're rigid and you stay rigid throughout your life and immovable and immutable, then something's going to break, you know? To be supple and to be mutable and to flow and to allow the story's medicine to work on you at the appropriate time. That's the space that I like to inhabit and hopefully I'm inviting the audience to inhabit that space too. I've also heard you say that storytelling is not a spectator sport. That's true. <laughs> and uh, and I noticed uh, in some of your tellings, at least online, that you'll begin with a, a particular ritual, I feel, yeah. with a crick and a crack. Yeah. And and I'd love maybe for you to speak to that. And, and what is it about that that ritual that also is about inviting the audience into something of which you know, they are not just there to observe, but to also participate. I think it's also, as well as what you say, it's about um, asking permission to enter the space. 
where the story is because sometimes you might not want to be there. You're there in the audience because someone said, hey, come along and, you know, there's this thing happening and people are like, oh, what's this story? I don't know. To get permission to ask, is it okay? Is it okay for me to take you into the belly of the dragon? Is it okay for me to take you into the deepest, darkest recesses of the forest? Is it okay for me to take you so you can see death in action? Is this okay? And so the to me, that's what it's about. And then um, to keep checking that it's okay. So you don't just get permission at the end and then keep going. Someone might, I, I was in an audience once where I was in a storytelling session once where I was telling uh, a duppy story. Do you know what duppy is? Mm-mm. A duppy is the Jamaican word for ghost or phantom, spectre, spook. Mm. And so I was telling this story about a duppy baby. This this couple really, really wanted a child and the husband goes off uh, to market and he sees a baby and um, he picks it up and takes it home. And then in their longing is so overwhelming that they don't consider whether or not it was right to have that baby in their house. But anyway, in the middle of the night, the baby turns into a demon and freaks, <laughs> freaks them both out. And there was a woman in the audience who was heavily pregnant. She freaked out. And she got up in the middle of the story. She was like, no, 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 no. And she left. And I was like, uh. But I did say <laughs> crick crack. <laughs> you said crack. <laughs> wow. But, you know, you have to keep checking. But... But also you have to keep telling. Uh, There have been times when I've stopped, uh, mainly with young people, and not not out of any pride or anything, but because I I haven't felt that the permission was really given. And so you have to stop and say, look, you know, I can't force this. I'm not going to impose this story on you. I don't think it's fair. So I'll go away for a bit. You have to think... I'll have a think, and then if you really want me here, then I'll you'll come and get me, and I'll know, and it'll be cool. And it's never kind of, how dare you treat me like this? Well, sometimes I will say, look, I love what I'm doing, and if I stay here with this energy, I might love it a little less, so I'll go and mm. sit in the staff room for a bit, you know. But <laughs> aside yeah. from that, you know. That's really compelling, actually, for me to hear Essentially, I mean, maybe the language that I would hear is is to ask consent to bring people into the story. Mm. Uh, But I wonder as well, what is on the other side of that to check with the story if it wants to be told? Is there other also a kind of intuitive or or kind of courtship needed to to check with the story or or even to stop a story if the story doesn't want to be told? That's a really good question. I have a tendency to leave everything to the very last minute, even the choosing of the story to the very last minute, mainly because it has to feel authentic. And maybe that is whether or not that story wants to be told, but it's also to do with balance and energy in the evening. Because I think one of the things to guard against is pushing the same energy throughout the night. Is you've got to give dynamic, you've got to give light relief to your audience, you've got to give them space. If you tell them a story that's, that 
is particularly challenging to listen to, then you have to give them space to go like that. That can be done in silence, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it can also be done with a story. So I'll spend a typical thing I will do is turn up without, and it's funny because I read it in Martin's book as well, that all his stories leave him at the, at the, the, just before he goes to do a show, the stories all leave him. And it's just like, I cannot remember one story. And that's what happens to me. And I have to find the person who booked me, usually a colleague, and say, what stories do, did I tell? Or what, what story do you want to hear? And then that will trigger my deep memory. If I have to think about it, I'm less likely to be able to do it. But if I feel it, feel what what energy do I want to give? What energy is being asked for this evening? And usually I have to be reassured, not about my ability to tell, but that it's okay to repeat material that I may have already told because I'm really conscious of, I don't want to take people to the same place all the time with the same types of stories. And I don't want to become a one trick pony. I don't want to be seen as, oh, Jan's the one who tells those types of stories. I want to, I want to explore as vast a landscape of story as possible. But I also reserve the right to change my mind at the last minute. Even if I'm in front of the audience, I'll say, I was going to tell you that, but actually I think I'm going to tell you this. So it's it's giving, giving myself permission to be flexible in the moment, in front of the audience, without fear. Because after all, an audience is just a group of people sitting in a room. It's not some great scary thing the audience you know it's just a group of individuals Mm. it's a collective of individuals so i'm there to serve their their spirit if you like and i reserve the right to to say you know what i don't think you're gonna feel this one tonight i'm not feeling this one tonight i'm gonna come with a different one it strikes me this relationship to what feels like a ritual actually mm. this ability to to be present to the moment and and in relationship with yeah what what wants to come the, the energy um the audience versus uh maybe a, a performance or or maybe a kind of uh script right that okay th- then i do this and then i do this mm. it feels like that that always feels unfaithful yeah. for me you know to the moment yeah and um and you're speaking to this readiness right of of a kind of um uh yeah deep listening it feels yes. like to yes. to what the moment needs yeah i think you're right and it's a it's a kind of the be here now and now is this minute this moment and this moment and this moment and you know now isn't the whole evening now is now and then it's gone and then it's now again and then it's gone and so to be in that space or to be okay to be in that space to relinquish control at the same time as being uh how can i describe it i have to relinquish control so that the story whatever story needs to be told in that moment flows 
But at the same time, I have to be aware. I have to be on point. I have to know. There's, an, uh, there's a day when I was at a storytelling festival in Wales and I was in the middle of a story and I was really in the story, but at the same time I could see there was a little boy who couldn't find his mum. And he was kind of walking past all the knees of all the adults and all the adults were so gripped by the story. None of them saw the little boy who couldn't find his mum. And even though he was grazing past their knees, they were just like, yeah, 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 pass me, pass me kind of thing. <laughs> and I stopped and I said, your mum and dad are over there. You know, and then I said to the audience, you know, give him a round of applause, you know, kind of thing. And he went off to his mum and dad. And then I just got on with the story. And to me, that's that's not a big thing. But to others, that's a massive thing because they would have felt interrupted. There's that, that thing of being supple that I was talking about before, you know, being open. I love that story. Oh, thank you. It, there's a sense there as well that whatever's happening, that it includes it all. I hear in what you're saying that, you know, the, the child actually trying to find his mom, that's like part of the telling in that moment, mm. not, not the antithesis to the telling, yeah. um, just as everybody present as well, their, their capacity to lean in and to be present is so much a part of the telling than a kind of one-way broadcast, yeah. um, which to me feels like a very old, old kind of magic, you know, that, that in some ways feels um, like it doesn't survive the technology of, of broadcast, right, or of film where in some sense, you know, you, you know, I mean, as I'm, I'm a 13 years of filmmaker. And so I kind of know this, that the, there's something magical about that uh, alchemy of, you know, picture, yeah. sound and all that rest. And at the same time, I think the audience has a sense that, you know, I can just kick back. I could leave the room. It doesn't matter. You know, like the film will still play, you know, if you're talking about yeah. a theater or you're at home, whereas uh, a kind of live storytelling, right. It's like, you're kind of, you're implicated in, in some way. And it kind of yeah. brings with it a kind of responsibility, I feel, that um, maybe in the modern culture, when these kinds of things are, are, are more rare, that there's less uh, alertness to that kind of responsibility. It's funny because I can't imagine sitting in an audience and seeing a kid lost and not doing something about it. Mm. You know, so that sense, that relinquishing of responsibility for for being a human being in that moment is also, you know, me stopping and, and, and helping that kid find their mom. It wasn't, it wasn't a conscious act of saying to the audience, come on, there's a kid who's lost his mom. But afterwards I could say, wait a minute, why didn't anyone help that kid out? You know, because they're so committed to the idea of what it is they're doing, which is giving, giving honor to me. But um, I, you have to honour what's happening now. And what's happening now is a kid is lost. So all bets are off as far as the contract between performance and uh, performer and audience, you know, because if the contract of being human isn't being honoured, this means nothing. Hmm. Well, that's well said. Yeah, when I'm in school, one of the things that I say to children, because they don't realise, you know, I tell a story, they start talking. And I say, you do know I'm he I'm actually in the room, don't you? <laughs> I'm actually here and I can actually see you. And this isn't a television program. I'm a real person and I'm really here. And I don't say it 
again, to chastise them is to remind them that real things are happening in front of this. This is not a programmed situation. It's not where the teacher says, good listening is crossing your legs and crossing your arms. That's not good listening. That's just crossing your legs and crossing your arms. Yeah. The storytelling in a live storytelling session for a child helps to deprogram all that stuff, but they don't realize that they need to be deprogrammed. So you can forgive them talking because if they were at home, that's what they'd be doing whilst watching the television. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be honouring anything other than maybe their mum or dad saying, shh, you know, that would be, and that's coming from a place of authority, not from a place of consciousness. I'm struck by how there's an ability to remember if that's what's happening, right? Uh, yeah. A depth and a richness that, uh, you know, and just to say in the, in the tellings I saw that were on YouTube, such a, such a level of, I mean, mastery, I would say, um, where where there doesn't seem to be a gap between, you know, again, the thought about what you're trying to say to what is being said. And and so, again, that image of, of a kind of transmission or a conduit seemed, seemed appropriate. Um, and I wonder as well for you, like, how does one go about as a storyteller, quote, remembering, or is it a completely other kind of facet of, I've heard of, you know, often there was bones of a story that are the things to be, to be corded and to be kind of pillars um, of a telling and then everything else kind of spills out around those um, kind of key moments as one way of understanding it. And, but I wonder for you, like, is that kind of the alchemy that's happening sort of within you? I, I think it is. I think it's more, I, I'll tell you about a recent experience I've had with a story and that might suggest, uh, give you an, an, an idea of how I go about it. So there's a book that I'm reading at the moment and it's, about life and death and there's some the folk tales they're really completely outside of my experience of anything i've read around life and death before and um on first reading i'm like whoa that is i couldn't tell that that is really i i haven't got the capacity the the spiritual capacity to lift those stories off the page and tell them but there's one in particular that struck me really hard because the initial image of the story is of men and women on either side of a great field. The women have brooms, the men have sacks, and the women are brushing dirt into the sacks, okay? And then uh, a great table falls down from the sky, and then a great stone falls down from the sky and lands on the table. Then a great chair falls down from the sky and lands in front of the table. And then the goddess, the creator, falls down from the sky, sits in the chair, puts her feet on the stone and starts to create man and woman. But she doesn't create them as man and woman. She creates beings. And then she says, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a man or do you want to be a woman? They choose. Mm. And then she says, what gifts do you want? Do you want material gifts or do you want spiritual and medicinal gifts, healing gifts? They choose. And then she says, how do you want to die? They choose. And then those who choose material gifts go down uh, um, uh, a muddy river. Those who choose um, um, healing gifts and um, medicinal gifts and spiritual gifts go down a clear river. And then 
They lived their lives according to the choices that they made, just as they were created. That blew my mind, completely blew my mind, because the idea of choosing your karma isn't something you associate with an African landscape. It's something you associate with an Eastern landscape. Mm. So as someone who is a practitioner of Nichiren Buddhism, this idea that this concept of karma and choosing karma and living according to your chosen karma could be existent in Africa was just like, wow, that's amazing. But I didn't know how I was going to tell it. It was like, it was too overwhelming almost to be able to tell it. And also on first glance, I hadn't made the correlation. So that also made it difficult for me to imagine telling it. Once I made the correlation, I was like, I've got to tell that story, but how am I going to tell it? And then all I did was every time I spoke to someone, I'd say, oh my God, I read this incredible story. It blew my mind. I don't know how I'm going to tell it. It happens like this. And then I'd kind of, as Tad Hargrave would say, I puttered the story with them. <laughs> yeah, I had a puttering session about the story. And then before I knew it, I had the story there. The bones of it are the, the kind of... Uh, the incredulity about it and sharing my incredulity about it, those conversations have actually now formed it. But even though it's formed it to a certain extent, when I come to tell it, and I will tell it, I won't plan it, I won't write it down, I won't do points, I won't do any of that stuff. I'll just try to honour it and its impact on me when I read it. That's how I go about it. Uh, and also, as I say, I reserve the right to change my mind as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, But that's how I go about it. And it's more to do with a sense of it, feeling of it, a relationship to it. And it's that relationship of the one you have when you're bursting to share something with someone. You know that feeling? Where, oh my God, like you as a filmmaker, you must know, like the first Kurosawa that you saw must have, you know, I knew it blew my mind. And it's just like, I have to tell someone about this film. I have to tell someone and then you tell it. And once you've told it, that's it. It's out there. It's in there and it's out there. And you just want to honor it. Hmm. It strikes me as well that storytellers are a kind of shapeshifter in that they're, they're asked to inhabit many different roles within a story um, and, and to faithfully do it. Like there's something about, like it's almost, if, if, if a storyteller kind of is subtly judging a character as they're telling their, you know, their story or their lines about the, that person, you know, the audience maybe could feel that, that kind of incongruence, you know, that there's a kind of, yeah. it's not faithful in that sense. And I wonder how you yeah. approach that capacity or what is that capacity to shapeshift and be faithful within the role of that person or that character within the story and then shift and suddenly you know you're you're in a different role in a different character i think i think it's less shape-shifting and more self-accepting mm. because in order to give life to the different characters in the story and in order to give life to them with true authenticity you have to be honest about accessing that in yourself and the ability to be real about the parts of yourself that you may not find that savory 
but they're there because we're humans. It's all packed in there. There's no point in denying any of it. So you may as well access it and make that character true as opposed to a caricature. There's a show that I do which is based on the Sundiata epic from Mali. I do it with two musicians, Raymond Sereba, Kwame Sereba. And uh, there's a character in the story called Sasama Berete. Sasama Berete is the stepmother of Sundiata Keita. And it's so easy. It was so easy to kind of see her as the baddie, wicked stepmother, you know. And I'd been telling the story and really empathising with Sogolon Keju, the wife of Magan Konfata, the mother of, of Sundiata, really empathising with Sundiata, really empathising with the grandmother. But if I'm honest, not empathising with Sasama Berete. And one day Raymond came up to me just before we went on stage to do the show. And he said, you know Sasama Berete? And I said, yeah, he went, don't make her ridiculous. That's not right. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this woman a disservice. And it's not, I don't see, it's not characters, they're people, yeah? And it's like, I've been doing this woman a disservice. I have not been honouring her pain at all. You're married to a man, you're his, the mother of his firstborn son. And then he comes home and tells you, actually, all bets are off. Your son's not going to be the king. You're not going to be the premier wife anymore. I'm marrying this other woman. She's too ugly to look at, but we can deal with that. And her child will be the king. To honour that, I have to be real about that. That is not right. You know, to be sim- to be dispossessed in one fell swoop because of a man's whims, mm. that's not a good place to be. And I was not honouring that. So I think I then had to really ask myself, come on, Jan, how would you feel? How would you feel if your man came home and did that? You'd be seriously pissed <laughs> off, you know? And whatever you did after that, maybe you you may lose, as Sassima Beretta did, is lose control of herself because she was so pissed off. But to be pissed off, she had a right to be. Mm. Absolutely. So it's to do with honouring the truth of the people in the stories and maybe not to see them as characters. I think that helps. It helps me anyway. In hearing a story you told, I think it was one of the TEDx uh, talks that you gave where you told a story about the camel, I think, and the... The camel driver. Yeah, the camel driver. And it was very powerful um, in the in the... Again, I don't want to call it the moral, but there was some kind of revelatory recognition by the end of the story, which you said around the older man is basically saying he didn't want to live in a world in which a man's word was not um, true or, or didn't mean anything yeah. or something, you know, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. And so there was something actually I just recognized maybe stirred in me around a kind of rather than a prideful masculinity, but a kind of noble masculinity or something along these yeah. lines. And And so I wonder for you as well, the capacity to inhabit these these different uh, people and, and often of different genders as well like what has storytelling taught you around masculinity or what has it helped you understand um around yeah men and masculinity perhaps as a whole 
I think one of the things that I find challenging about the landscape at the moment the is that roles or it's not really roles is it it's it's okay for women to have pride in themselves as women and their womanhood etc etc but it seems there's no space for men to to be at peace with their manhood i have a son okay and i'm i was very conscious growing up that uh, when he was growing up that i wanted him to have space to be what he thought it was to be a man not and there is such a thing as toxic masculinity but i don't think that's it that's not all there is and i think that to honor the space that men have in this world is important for me to do to honor the the confusions that living in a modern age men have to face i think it's i have to honor that there's a story that i tell called the hunter i don't know if you've seen it but it's about a young man who is bad he's a bad hunter he can't do it you know it's not his he's not his leaning but he's determined that he wants to be a hunter and all the other boys in the village who've been initiated just write him off you know and he's written off because who in a village full of hunters wants to marry a man who can't hunt that's ridiculous so he is shunned in a way and he's embarrassed and he's humiliated so he goes to his grandmother and he begs her he says you know the old magic tell me who to go to and she says i can't because i'm not sure that this power will be good for you but he's absolutely determined to have access to the magic that will make him a great hunter so he goes to he goes to find this man his grandmother tells him take some palm wine take a goat take a white fowl make these offerings to him but he's so loud coming through the forest because he's so bad at what he does <laughs> that the old man hears him coming for miles and he's like what do you want here what do you want and he says to him he tells him his worries tells him the trouble and the old man says just practice and he says i've tried everything i can't and he's he's desperate and it's a real desperation and the old man looks at him and he says all right i'll i'll give you what you need but you cannot ask me to take it away from you you can't ask mm. me to remove it once it's given it's given that's it and he says why would i just please and and he begs and the old man says okay and he gives him this terrible medicine to drink uh this medicine that he makes from herbs and roots and berries and also some of his own spit and you know it's not pleasant let's face it anyway he drinks that and he immediately has uh, a waking dream where he sees himself running very quickly and he can hear everything he can see everything his senses are really keen he can smell everything and then suddenly he's back with the old man and the old man says there now you're a master hunter anyway he goes back to the village and as he's as he goes back to the village he goes to the young hunters and he says come on let's go hunting and they're like no we're not going hunting with you you're a disaster and he's like no no please let's go hunting so he goes with them and then just as they're about to go off to the regular hunting grounds he kind of says we have to go this way and they're like no we have to go this way this is the way we go but he runs off 
And basically he smell antelope and he starts to shapeshift because that's how he becomes a great hunter. He's changed into a panther. Anyway, he manages to to secure the, the kill, bring it back, and everyone is really impressed with him. And suddenly he's accepted into the fold. He's accepted into the group. And of course he becomes eligible, suddenly eligible. And there's a, a young woman in the village who who yearns for him, but she's too embarrassed to admit it because he can't hunt. Now that he's proved himself, she can tell everyone, you know, and love grows between them both. And then he, he, she tells her father that she wants to marry him. The father gives permission and she's preparing herself. He's gone off to get gifts for the family. She's preparing herself for the ritual of meeting and greeting and saying yes to the um, betrothal. And as he's coming back from the market with the gifts, he smells her. He can picks up the scent on the air. And then he kind of makes himself known to the girls and they're coy and they say, go away, you shouldn't be looking because they're bathing. And then suddenly he says, I'm coming down. And before he knows what's happening, he's down there really quickly. And then before he knows what's happening, He's transforming and he can't stop it. And the girls are afraid. They're terrified and she's transfixed by the transformation. And then he blacks out. And when he wakes up, he can taste. Whenever he's been hunting before, he can taste the blood of the quarry that he's chased. This time he can taste human blood and he's frightened. Anyway, he goes back to the village. Everyone is kind of like... And the father of the, the betrothed girl says, don't look at her, don't come near her. You know, we don't know what you are, but you need to go. And if you even think about her, I'll know. And I will take the course of action necessary. So he runs back to his grandmother. And his grandmother, she knows. She's waiting for him. <laughs> and he throws himself down in her lap and he weeps. And then he says to her, I can't stand it. What if I turn on you next? And he says, I've got to go back to the old man. And she's like, you can't. And he says, I have to. I've got no choice. I can't live with it. So he goes back to the old man. The old man says, what are you doing here? And he explains. And the old man says, I can't. And he says, please, please. So the old man removes the magic. And he, you know, said to him, you lose your life. But he thinks he's going to die. But actually what happens is the old man brings a calabash of water and he waits for the water to become still. And when it's still like a mirror, he says, look, and he sees that all the all the life force has been drained from his body. He's not a young man anymore. He's an old man now. Yeah. But he hasn't lost his ability mm. to hunt. Mm. So his senses are just as keen, you know. So he's old in in the physical sense, but he's young in the spiritual sense. And he has knowledge to impart. So he's become an elder, basically. That's the that's the price that he's paid. Is to become an elder before his time, but to also pass on those skills that he's learned to other young hunters. I love that story. Wow. I love that story because it allows for the vulnerability and the pain and the struggle of that young man to be part of his own community. Mm-hmm. And how sometimes a young man will go to desperate lengths to become part of a community that is very clear on what his roles should be and how he should be living according to those assigned roles. 
And sometimes it's not for you, you know, and it's hard to admit and it's hard to accept. And I think in that story, for me, that young man's attachment to his idea of himself because of the pain that he's suffering, if, if he'd been more embraced by his community, he may not have wanted to continue and insist on being a great hunter, mm. you know? And that's why I love that story because, you know, it's important to embrace the vulnerabilities of, of our young men, you know, and their confusion about, is it okay just to be me? Is that okay? Am I allowed? Am I allowed to not have to live according to your expectations of me? You know, and I want to honor those things. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very powerful story. Um, I have a two-year-old son as well. Mm. And um, certainly these questions, you know, are alive for me in terms of as he's growing up and, and how to um, impart that, that capacity or that, that, um, ability to find a degree of truthfulness, you know, within himself and also within his place within a culture at large. And I love, yeah. I love what you said about um, the, the the struggle that I think particularly a lot of young men have. I mean, and older men, but the the is it okay to be myself? You know, and I, in some ways that feels like the casualty of this climate of toxic masculinity or this you know clear sense of you know systemic oppression and and um clear trespass i think in a lot of instances you know of entitlement men men having entitlement to women's bodies and all the rest that's all true in the sense of you know terrible and needs to be contended with but there's this other casualty like i said is this there isn't space therefore for masculinity to or, or younger men to be to to yeah to be welcomed in as they are you know, and, and yeah. I think for me, I found that a lot of men spaces actually, you know, that, I, that I've had to kind of find or create as I'm older. Yeah. And I feel like there's a kind of refuge though in the stories as well though, you know, which that's what I, I guess I recognize in the, in the telling that you offered there too, yeah. that, you know, if young men had access to these stories, um, you know, at particular times of their lives, would they feel as, as alone, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think they would. I know I wouldn't have. Yeah, and I wonder what is that link between almost like, yeah, like a cultural refuge uh, story, you know, initiation. Like all of these things seem to be related in some fashion. Yeah, I agree. I also, though, I just wanted to add to what I said by saying that it was clear in that story whether or not the community welcomed him in or not, he was not a hunter. And he insisted he insisted on going beyond the bounds. You know, magic is there, but that magic's not for you. You know, something good came out of it. You're lucky something good came out of it, actually. But that thing of not being satisfied, being so dissatisfied with your lot that you will do whatever it takes, regardless of the consequences... That is also, I think there's a kind of a, it's a double-edged sword, really. Being embraced by your community or not because you don't fit in with their societal structure. And then saying, well, in order to be part of it, I'll do anything. And it's that I'll do anything part that is questionable. 
We have to be able to embrace the vulnerabilities, but we also have to know, actually, there's a line here. You're not a hunter. You might be a fisherman, actually. It's okay. But to say, no, I insist, regardless, that has to be contended with as well, I think. So I just wanted to make that point because we can feel sorry for him as well, but we also have to say some things just aren't for you. And that's also okay. But to come back to your point, which I've now forgotten (laughs) because I was talking Mm -hmm. about my Mm -hmm. point so much. There seems to be a relationship between story and and refuge and culture and initiation, like some sense of an interrelatedness between them. I I think there is. I mean... There's not much more to say about it, I don't think. I think they, they, that's their function. That's what they're for. They are for us to take comfort from, and I don't mean comfort as in, ah, uh, I don't mean that kind of comfort. I mean, take comfort in that they support us in being human. They support us through our stages. I mean, these are things I'm only learning as a storyteller. You know, these these aren't things I grew up with. These aren't things that I uh, had in my home. These are things that I've, by accident, discovered through the stories and through choosing stories that spoke, that speak to what I'm wrestling with, but without realising that that's what I'm doing. So if I can very quickly quote another story, there's a story, Nyapoko, it's from Kenya. It's about a girl who is not traditionally beautiful, but she has a beautiful spirit and so she's loved and she's prized for her inner beauty. Whereas the the girls who are traditionally beautiful, they are so annoyed with the fact that this girl gets all the attention. And anyway, there's a series of challenges that she has to undergo because of their toxicity towards her their their hatred of her jealousy of her is so powerful that it transforms her into they objectify her so they change her into a, a calabash they change her into a pipe and then because the pipe and the calabash are admired they change her into a dog and it's a broken dog and it's a stinking dog and it's a pus-filled dog and a sore-covered dog they go off they get married she comes to the same village as the dog. She's taken in by a woman who cleans up the wounds. And basically when the son comes and says, okay, so the time of choosing is upon us. Is there a young woman who is going to choose me? And the mother says, no, actually, no, but there's this dog. And he's like, I don't want a dog. And he kicks the dog and he goes back and he says, I'm not coming back home till the next round of wives appear so I can be chosen. Anyway, it turns out that the the girl shapeshifts. She throws off her skin every day. She helps the daughter of the house with her chores and puts the skin back on. And the girl keeps trying to tell her mother, there's a girl in that dog. And the mother thinks she's just been out in the sun too long. She won't listen to her. Eventually, she persuades her um, because she's so outraged that her mother won't listen to her and won't believe her that her mother starts to think, oh, well, there's, there's a ring of truth in her protestations. So the mother stays behind sees the dog change, gets the dog, gets her son to come back and throw the dog skin onto the fire. And then she's there shining. But now she's terrified because she's exposed and the other girls are in the village. And 
she doesn't tell him that she just is terrified and he says I'll protect you don't worry but he can't protect her from the malice of the other girls and they basically con- they contrive to, to do away with her once and for all so they try to drown her but he, he goes back he goes to the swamp where they tried to drown her and he saves her he breathes his life into her body she revives and then she finally tells her story and everyone then understands that she's been persecuted all this time and they send the girls away the husbands of the other girls they send them away but they don't say we never want to see you again they say you haven't you've left home too soon you haven't had the correct training you're, you need to go back to your families. You need to learn what it means to be human and then maybe we'll come and find you. So that's the story. I told that story for eight years and a friend of mine called Levana Marshall said to me, but you're telling your own story because she knew that I'd been bullied at school. She knew all of these things about me that I had never made the correlation. But when she said, but you're telling your own story, suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, I am. I'm telling my own story, you know. So they are a refuge. They are a, a place that you can go to heal yourself, but it doesn't have to be conscious. In fact, I think the more conscious it is, the less, the less real healing is going on. That story became like a healing balm for me. I think if I'd approached it consciously, mm-hmm. then... I'm not sure it would have had the same healing effect. Just through the telling and the telling and the telling of it, I was letting something go. Wow. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Tad had an interesting question that he put forth to ask. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> which is a curiosity around the, the fact that youth seem to be drawn largely to slam poetry. And, and spoken word, yes. right, as, yeah. a, as a, a medium. And I'm curious to know, what's the difference between, you know, storytelling and, say, slam poetry or spoken word? You know, are they comparable? Uh, in, in, are they quite distinct? You know, is there a kinship between them? I think there is a kinship between them, but I, I think the kinship between them is being hindered by marketing. Mm. This is about how do you, you know, storytelling isn't seen as sexy. Storytelling isn't seen as cutting edge. Storytelling isn't seen as, you know, the thing that you want to be connected with because it's so, it's about who controls the narrative, you know. If I was controlling the narrative of what storytelling is in terms of how it's seen, how it's marketed and who is at the rudder, of the ship of storytelling. It's not people who look like me. It's not people who sound like me. It's not people who have come at storytelling from a purely oral and intuitive position. It's not. It's usually white men or white women, middle-class white men and middle-class white women who set the narrative. Yeah. And the, and the way they're setting the narrative as far as, young people who, who who want to give voice to who they are in the world, they're saying, we're not talking to you. We're talking to people who who aren't like you. We're talking to people who are, by the way, I just want to preface this, but I'm a proper full-on hippie, okay? But those young people don't see themselves as hippies. 
the storytelling world is, I think, driven by a new age culture that does not include young people, that does not include young people of this age, because it's always harping back to another age. That's got nothing to do with them, you know? Young people have come to see my storytelling shows. Young black people have come to see my storytelling shows and have gone, wow, oh, I didn't realise. I hadn't understood. But there's no access. You know, here in England, there are so few young black storytellers. So few, because they're not seeing themselves represented in the art form. So why would anyone, and I don't just mean people of colour, why would anyone who's born and raised in the 90s and the noughties, yeah, want to be a storyteller when the people who were driving the storytelling narrative are still living in the 60s or still living in the 70s? You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an imbalance, I think. If you could set the narrative of, of what you would say or how the young people would be granted access to the power and the magic and the conjuring and the, and the nowness of, of the relevancy of storytelling, how might you describe it to them? How might you speak what storytelling is to them? I wouldn't describe anything. I would, I would tell them, I would show them, I would demonstrate, I would take them, I would, I would embrace them. I would let them see that it's about them as much as it's about me. I would, I would touch them with the story, you know? When I go into schools, I go into primary schools, you can have as many, you know, you watch the elders, the year sixes, sixth graders walk in, kind of, you know, you know, we're too cool for this. <laughs> what, what do you mean storytelling kind of thing? They walk in <laughs> and then you touch them, you know, and then they're like, wow, I didn't know. I hadn't understood there's a there's a festival in in Belgium at this castle called Aldenbeesen and they bring in young people who are uh, language learners so english french german spanish italian swedish but that's the, usually the the um adult learners but the european languages they come in to learn european languages and they they're teenagers and they don't want to be at a castle in in Bilzen, in a you know, in this dark room, listening to stories, they're not interested in that. But they're brought there because they're language learners. And I remember the first time I ever did it, it was a nightmare because they were so hardcore. They weren't interested, mm. and they let me know that they weren't interested. And I had to say, I have to say that I had to leave the room. I was just crick crack, you know. I was trying to do the crick crack, and I was like crick, and they were like. <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> oh, no, you know. Mm. So I went off and had a little pray. And then I came back and, you know, I said to them, look, you make a decision. I'll be back. And I came back and then they, they engaged with me. And then I said, why, when it was all over, I said, why did you give me such a hard time? What was it? You know, I'm curious to know. And they said, we thought, you know, we're too old for stories. You know, this isn't about us. So I thought, okay. So I've got to tell the most compelling stories that I can find, stories of initiation, stories that speak to them, not stories that are about 
being a good person or anything like that, just stories that speak to them, you know? So I did, uh, so I'd, start, I'd been there several times and there was one time I, I thought I'd just, just face it. So I said, so what did you think when the teachers said you were coming to a storytelling? And this one boy went, shit, like this. So I said, okay. I said, well, by the time I finished, I hope you'll be saying shit like that. So anyway, I did the whole session. And then when I finished, I said to him, well, and he went, shit. And I was like, good. That's all I can ask. That's all I can ask of you is that you f allow yourself to feel it, allow yourself to be immersed in it and draw your own conclusion. But the worthiness, you know, I think there's just something... When you telegraph worthiness, as opposed to being with people and touching them with story, you put them off. And young people don't want to be told about worthiness. They want to be where they are. They want to feel what they feel where they are. And I think that's the only way to really get to draw people to storytelling. But there's cultures where that struggle isn't necessary because in indigenous cultures, storytelling is fundamental. We're so far away from that, that you have to do battle. But I'm up for it, you know, I'm here for it. But I'm not gonna insist or I'm not gonna moralize and I'm not gonna beg either. I'm just gonna do what I do and touch lives with the 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 mirror of life you know this is what people are this is what people do this is what people can be this is where love can be this is where hate can be but it don't matter there's space for growth in all of it so it can be beautiful if you can just allow yourself to sit there and not kick off and <laughs> not um absent yourself from this moment it's okay well that's a beautiful place i think to wind down our conversation today um you know the image that came to me as you were speaking there um was you know in an uncertain time in an uncertain future and whether or not you know technology as it's been will be around to provide as much distraction as it as it has uh that storytellers after the apocalypse will be some of the most prized people, right? And rightly so, as they were before, yeah. uh, as as just troves of um, of story. And as you say, it, just a deep um, ability to conjure humanness in a moment. Yeah. And I just want to honor you for walking that path and, and courting those stories and, you know, really giving yourself to, to this life in a time when often it does perhaps feel like battle um, to to be on behalf of the beauty of story and, and yes. your willingness to do so. And I just want to honor you for that and for our time today. Thank you. And let's hope the powers don't, that be don't cotton on to the fact that we're here <laughs> doing what we're doing. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the mythic masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. 
Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.